Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Please take that Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you there in the pew. Please take it. If, you, if you're not used to the Bible, you can cut it in half on the right-hand side. If you cut it in half again, it's going to put you somewhere just past uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over in either Acts or Romans. If you'll keep hanging a right, you'll run across the Corinthians uh, first and second. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Uh, this uh, whole chapter is the greatest treatment of the resurrection that there is in the Bible in one particular section of Scripture. It is the greatest treatment of what is told to us in the Gospels about the resurrection, what is alluded to by Christ himself, what is alluded to out of the Old Testament. But chapter 15 is the most extensive work on the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is in the Bible. So this morning, let's jump right in the middle in verse 12. We're going to read a few verses. We're going to preach the entire chapter to you this morning. But uh, if you have found 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 12 reads like this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Father, this morning, we have worshipped you. We've worshipped you through our time together over in the edge of the cemetery with a sunrise service and communion this morning. We have worshipped you as we fellowship together in eating, as we went to Sunday school, as, as Father, we have sung praises to your name this morning, as the choir has blessed our heart as they preach the gospel through their song this morning, Father. And now we open your word. We come to that point in the service where we hear your still small voice. To do that, Father, I ask this of you, that you make very little of me and very much of yourself, that we may see you and your son in all of your glory. And it's in his precious name we pray this morning. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. This morning, looking at this text, I can't help but think of, of what else today is besides Resurrection Sunday. Today happens to be April the 1st. Anybody know what the secular world celebrates on this day? It's April Fool's Day. It's April Fool's Day. With this text in mind, and with the fact that the secular world today is trying to fool each other, I want to preach a message to you this morning entitled this, Whose Fool Are You? Cliff and I were talking just last week. We never could decide. Matter of fact, I couldn't find it, Cliff, for sure. But we're, we think it may have been Billy Sunday that used to tote with him a, a briefcase everywhere he went. And on one side, it said, I'm a fool for Christ. On the opposite side, when he turned it around, it would say, whose fool are you? That's the question on the table this morning is whose fool are you? You know, you don't have to be a brilliant person. <laughs> The most brilliant person for sure alive today to see the foolishness that's going on in this world that we live in. 
the senseless killings that are going on in our streets, the addiction to drugs and alcohol that are just taking over so many people's lives, the sexual addictions with pornography and infidelity and promiscuity uh, throughout this world, the demand that we have uh, to the rights that we want while just really ignoring everybody else's rights, the, the marching in the streets, the marching in the streets to ban guns for the safety of our kids while we're spending millions, if not billions of dollars with an organization that's killing them in the womb before they're ever born. You talk about foolish. That makes absolutely no sense that we would put that much energy in something that makes no difference because the abortion industry has killed far more kids a year than guns have ever killed. Yet we'll march in the streets to ban guns and we'll pay them to slaughter our children. You talk about foolishness. This world has completely lost its mind. The undermining of marriage and everything that it stands for. The choice to decide what gender you feel like being today. Hello, is this a crazy world or what? The total disregard for the authority of parents by children. Because I'm going to tell you. The day that the parents lose authority over children is the day that you get a world like we have right now. Because it moves from the children not having authority to the parents to the parents not having authority due to, to who is set over them in government. Do, do we see that happening right now? We don't care that there's a law. We don't feel like we should abide by it. So we're going to ignore it as a state. But what a strange world full of foolishness that we live in you know there's a battle that is going on in our world today there is a battle and guess what the battle's not between the republicans and the democrats you know it's not between isis and america it's not between the right and the left it's not between russia and the rest of the world it's not between those who believe in the sanctity of life and those who believe you should have a choice to kill the baby if you want to you know it's not even a battle that's going on between christians and pagans no, the battle in the world today is the same battle that's been going on for thousands upon thousands of years. It's the battle between good and evil. It's the battle between right and wrong. It's the battle between truth and lies. Let's face it, it's the battle between Satan and God. And at first glance, it looks as if Satan is winning. At first glance, it looks as if Satan is winning. Every day we hear of another mass shooting that's going on in our nation. We read the newspapers and we see, so we see where a father has killed his family and then shot himself over some uh, problem that's just put him in so much distress he couldn't see a way out. We read the newspapers and see the epidemic that's running wild with opioids right here in our own neighborhood, by the way. It's not off in New York City. It's not somewhere in California. It's in Wilmington and the surrounding areas. The opioid epidemic is rampant here around us. We hear about another child that's been kidnapped and been sexually abused by a teacher or a coach that should be there to protect them, yet they're using those kids for their own pleasure. We see a world that is headed to hell in a handbasket as fast as it's ever gone. And it's because of the foolishness in this world. You know, and it seems like he's winning in the secular world. But here's what bothers me the most. It looks like Satan's winning in the church. It looks like he's winning in the church. The divorce rate in the church has surpassed the divorce rate in the secular world. Give yourself a pat on the back. The percentage of men addicted to porn in the church 
matches the percentage of men addicted to porn in the world. <laughs> the preaching of the fact that there is a heaven and a hell <laughs> has practically disappeared from the pulpit. The truth that there is a penalty for your sin goes unmentioned. The fall of pastors and denominational leaders to sexual sin has become the norm. And unfortunately, belief in Jesus being the only way to a right relationship with Jesus Christ is no longer the foundation of many churches. See, I'm not worried about Satan winning in the world. He can have his moment of glory. What bothers me is when Satan starts winning in the church. Yes, folks, today there is a battle going on in the world that we live in, and it's a battle that's lasted for thousands of years. And I believe today, with all that I am, that we are living in the last days. And they are perilous last days. Over in 2 Timothy, over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. See if this sounds like today. Chapter 3 verse 1 of 2 Timothy says this. But now, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Just to make sure we know what those are, he lists them for. He says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Huh. Lovers of money. Boy, that sounds familiar. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. <laughs> and from such people, turn away. The Greek there is run. He goes on to say, for of this sort are those who creep into households and, and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Doesn't that sound like today and where we live? See, he says there's the last day and there's perilous times. And folks, I'm here to tell you we're living in them. We are living in him. But notice what he says in verses 8 and 9 of that same fast. He says, Now as Janus and John Braves resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Talking about who? Those who have those characteristics of the perilous times that he mentioned. The lovers of themselves. The lovers of things. He says, So, so do these also resist the truth? Men of corrupt minds disapproving concerning the faith. But verse 9. But they will progress no further. For their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. For their folly or foolishness will be manifest to all. It's not hard to see the foolishness of the world that we live in today. With that in mind, I want to ask you this morning, whose fool are you? Whose fool are you? Back in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul addresses those Corinth, the Corinth church. It's the same Corinth church that thought him to be a fool for the things that he preached and the things that he believed. And it's in this passage he makes three points that will help you answer the question of whose fool are you. The very first point that I think he makes here, and it's the point that drives home the gospel, is first there is a sin that needs to be shunned. 
You don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that sin is running rapid in the world we live in today. Things we thought off limits just 10 years ago have become the norm in our life today. Everyone wants the truth that they believe to be relevant. To be relevant. What do I mean? They, they don't think there's an absolute truth. It's relevant to the situation it's in. It's relevant to the way they feel today. It's relevant to what they can gain from that sin in their life. So the truth to them is no longer absolute. It's relevant to the situation we're in. To stand up and to say that there is one truth and to disregard the truth that makes the sinner headed for hell is seen as intolerant. To stand up and say there is an absolute truth and I know what that truth is makes what you're saying hate speech. Pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. Pay attention. Look over in the east at what happened when they decided that the world would be safer there if they took away the guns. If they took away all the guns, just take Hitler out of your mind. Think about what's going on right now in the countries overseas. They started with the right to own guns and took those away and said, no, the world would be safer if, if we didn't have those. We're going to do away with those. Guess what they came after next? When you stood up and spoke the truth, they put you in jail. See, how do you eat an elephant? You do it one bite at a time. The fight in this world is not over the guns in the street. The fight in this world is over Satan's control over us. How's he going to accomplish that? One bite at a time. You see, to stand up and say that there is one truth and to not accept that truth into your life sends you to a place called hell makes you a person that others say is speaking hate. But Paul knew better. Paul knew better. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, he says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So this is the message that he received that he had been going about preaching that he had delivered to them. And what is the message? That Christ died for our sins. According to Scripture, Paul said that our sin was so bad that the only remedy for our sin in this world was for Christ to hang upon a cross. In fact, Paul knew exactly what it was to sin and exactly what the cost of that sin was. If you remember over in First Timothy, over in First Timothy, when he was was writing to Timothy and he was talking to Timothy about what was going on in, in Timothy's world, what was going on in that church and how best to, to handle himself in that church, uh, Paul started off in that very first chapter there of, of, uh, of 1 Timothy in verse number 15, and he said this, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance. What I'm about to say is faithful and true. I know it to be true, and it's, it is to be received as the truth. Why? He says that Christ came into this world to save sinners, and he says, how do I know it's true? He says, of whom I am chief. You see, what Paul says, that sin is so bad that the only remedy to it is Jesus Christ himself dying on the cross. Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. Paul knew who he was before he met Jesus on the road. He knew that he was the chief persecutor of Christians. He knew that he had trusted in his own ability to keep the law to be righteous. He knew that the path that he had been walking, even though it was lined up and he was attempting to keep God's law, he knew that that path that he had been walking led to eternal death. Paul knew that the thing that made all the difference in who he was and who he had become was the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. 
when Paul said sin sends you to a place called hell, he knew. Because if it wasn't for Jesus Christ stepping into his life, that was his destiny. Sin is Satan's attempt to sever the relationship between God and man. And this severing relationship began a long time ago. It began with God and a garden. When God told Adam, you can eat of every tree. You can eat of every tree in this garden. Everything is yours except for one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is off limits. Everything else, all the beauty that's in the garden, all the trees hanging full of fruit, Adam, they're yours. But there's one. There's one you cannot eat from. For in the day that you eat from the tree, he didn't just give them a command saying, you can't do it. He says, if you do it, there's a consequence. He says, for in the day that you eat from the tree, you'll die. You'll die. He wasn't just talking about physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. Guess what man chose to do? Man chose to listen to Satan in the form of a snake saying, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And they decided to partake of that which God had said. Do not do because the penalty, the consequence is death. They decided God was a liar. And they partook. Satan convinced them with a few words to partake. How does that apply to us? The Bible says by one man's sin entered this world. By one man's sin was taken care of. It's a second Adam. But when Adam sinned, from that point forward, we're all born in sin. All of you that have children know you don't have to teach your child to say no. You don't have to teach your child to do the bad things. What are you constantly teaching your children? To do that which is good. To do that which is not harmful to them. We are born with a nature of sin. We're born in a body that desires the things of the world and would do anything to get it. We're born in a body that wants to be seen and wants to be God for itself. You see, and you look at Adam and Eve, you look at Adam and Eve, what was it that they lost by not listening to God? See, they lost their place in the garden. They were kicked out. They lost their fellowship with one another. It was a broken relationship now. They lost their relationship with the creation of God. Everything had been theirs except one tree. In one sin, they lost all of that. But most important, they lost their intimacy with God. They lost their relationship with God. You see... Sin today does the exact same thing in our life. The devil says, take control of your life. Your life is yours. But the divine says, lay down your life because I gave my life for you. Lucifer Lucifer says, live life to the fullest. You don't have long. But the Lord says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Satan says, if God really loved you, he'd want you to be happy. He'd really want you to be happy. And Jesus says, the Savior says, you can see my love for you. You can see the fact that I want want you to be happy by the nail prints in my hands and my feet and the spear that was shoved in my side. See, Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there is a way that is right to a man, 
but its end is in the way of death. You see, sin is man's attempt to be God. It's man's attempt to make his flesh happy. It's man's attempt to do all the things that he wants to do. That's the way of man. And what is the way that seems right to men? 1 John 2, 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. Boy, doesn't that describe the world we live in today. See, the way of the world is the way of Satan, and the way of Satan is sin. And who's caught up in the way of the world? Who gets caught up in the way of the world? That's the beauty of the Bible. It doesn't just tell you there's a way. It tells you who gets hung up in it. Romans 3.23 tells us, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Do you know what the Greek word all means? All. There's nobody. There is nobody that's going to miss that mark. Everybody's going to score 100 on that test because all of us have sinned. From the one sitting in the front pew to the back pew to the one standing in the pulpit, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what is the penalty? What is the penalty for that sin? Romans 6.23 tells us the penalty for the wages of sin is death. Sin brings death. It brings physical death. Think about the consequences from the sin in the world today. Think about the consequences of the opioid crisis, the number of people that are dying from it. Think about the consequences of those who are addicted to sex and they're out having uh, sex outside of their marriage and the diseases are just racking the bodies of those people. Think about the people that are addicted to alcohol so much to the point that they become despondent with life and kill themselves. Think about the consequences of sin. There is a physical death. For every sin, there is a consequence. You don't sin and miss the consequence. If you sin, there is a consequence to pay. Physically, there is a consequence to pay. But bigger than that, if you sin, there is a spiritual consequence. There is spiritual death. There is spiritual death because it separates you from an almighty God who wants to give you all that life has to offer for all of eternity. But if you sin against that holy God, you've committed a sin that has sentenced you to death. Permanent separation from an almighty God that loves you so much. He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for your sins. If you choose to sin and not receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your destiny is a place called hell. Make no bones about it. There is no one that gets a pass. There is no one that at the end of the time is going to say, I've been good, let me in. It's not going to matter. If you choose to live a life of sin, you have separated yourself from an almighty God and hell is your destiny. Don't be Satan's fool. Don't be Satan's fool. Jesus tells us all about this Satan in one simple verse in John 10, 10. He says, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The way of Satan is sin, and sin leads to death. So there is a sin to be shunned. There is a sin to be shunned, but second, there is a Savior. There is a Savior to be received. 1 Corinthians 15, again in that third verse, He said that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. 
what Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, they recognized what they had done. They recognized what they had done. How? First, for the first time ever, they realized they were naked. They had never seen themselves as unclothed. They had never known that they were exposed. They had this this really uncomfortable feeling that suddenly they were exposed. And to remedy that, they decided they would sew themselves together some fig leaves and they would make the first some kind of fancy set of clothes. Ralph Lauren. A Ralph Lauren suit. They were, what am I wearing? Oh, Walmart. Walmart. They would make a Walmart suit. But they, they put this clothing on them because they realized they had been exposed. They realized something was missing. They realized that they could be seen for who they really were. What if we decided that we were saved under grace? We didn't need clothes. We were all going to show up back at every Sunday. There'd be some of you that would switch churches because all you could think of was, where am I going to look if that pastor's in the pulpit? Oh my, you'd ask me to stand behind the pulpit now, wouldn't you? But you think about it. How exposed do you feel? How exposed would you feel unclothed? See, that's what they felt for the very first time. And it wasn't just this physical exposure. They were spiritually unclothed. For the very first time, they felt they could be seen for who they really were. And when God came down to see them, when God came down to walk in the garden with them, they not only had clothed themselves, but they were hiding. They dug down behind the bushes. They said, God's in the garden. Hide. Get behind the bushes. Hide. And they had dug down. And when God confronted them about their sin, he said, what are you doing? What is that you got on? He took the clothing off of them that they had made for themselves. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that he slay an animal. He spilled the blood of the animal. He took the hide from the animal that he had slain. And he made for them a covering. He made for them a covering. What's significant about that? That set the pattern. That set the pattern for you and I and our forgiveness of sins. Our covering of our exposure. Are being covered. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what was the pattern that God set up? God set forth the pattern for how we would be forgiven of sin. There was to be the spilling of blood, like Leviticus 17.11, I believe it is, says. 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For there to be life. For there to be life in us, we must be covered because of the spilling of the blood. See, set forth also that man was not able, not able, not capable of covering his own sin. That man was just not capable. You couldn't do enough good things. You couldn't walk enough old ladies across the streets. You couldn't give enough money. You couldn't sit in a church pew enough times. You couldn't sing in the choir, stand in the pulpit, or teach a Sunday school class enough to have your sin covered. You can't do it. He set forth that blood must be spilled for the washing away of sins, and the only one that was capable of doing that was Him. No, God's took man's covering away that he had supplied for himself and he provided for him a covering. He provided for him a covering. It reminds me, it's reminiscent of the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
Remember, there had been a promise to Abraham. Look at the stars. Look at the sand. That's how many you're going to have in your family. And he says, but God, I don't even have a child. So God gave him a child. hundred years old. His, his wife's womb was open and he had Isaac, the promised one. God had made a promise the stars and the sand through Isaac. The children would equal those. There was the promise. And God said, Abraham, take Isaac. Take some of the servants. Load up the wood. Head to the mountain. When you get there, leave the servants at the bottom. Take the wood and put it on the back of Isaac, your son, and climb the hill. Climb the hill. When you get to the top of the hill, you take the wood off Isaac's back and you make an altar. Because you need to sacrifice to the Lord for all that he has done. And when you get ready to sacrifice, you take Isaac, you lay him on that altar, and you spill his blood. God had promised that all of the generations would come through this young man. Yet he said, lay him on the altar and kill him. Abraham did exactly what God said. Raised the knife to slay his only begotten son, Isaac. And God said, Abraham, Abraham. <laughs> Hold on just one minute. I know that you have faith in me. I know that you are obedient. I know that you will do what I ask. And because of your obedience and your faithfulness, I'm going to do what I said I would do. Don't kill Isaac. Look in the bush. There in the bush is the sacrifice. There in the bush is the sacrifice. What God had done for Abraham what God had done for Adam and Eve, God has done for us. For in that same passage, Romans 6, 23, when it says, for the wages of sin is death, it has a comma. And it has my favorite word in all the Bible, but. My favorite word in the Bible is but. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. See, God gives us the gift that saves us. When was that gift given? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love towards us and then while that we were still sinners, that Christ died on a cross for us. While we were happy in our sin, God provided the gift of his only begotten son. Well, who then gets that gift? Who gets that gift? The most famous verse in all the Bible tells you who gets that gift. John 3, 16. For God, the almighty God, the God of creation, the God who saved Adam and Eve from their sin, the God who saved Isaac from death and provided the ram for the sacrifice, that God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten son he gave so that whosoever believes in him, believes in his death on a cross, believes in his burial on a tomb, believes that he rose from the dead on the third day. Whoever believes in him should not perish, will not perish, has no possibility of perish, but has eternal life. Who receives it? Those who believe. See, it's a gift, but it's a gift that's no good unless it's unwrapped. How do you unwrap the gift from God? You believe. You believe. Who is the whosoever? That's all of us. All those who believe in Jesus Christ. Would you rather be Satan's fool who came to kill, steal, and destroy? Or would you rather be Jesus' fool who came to seek and to save 
that which was lost and do it with outstretched arms and a death on the cross. See, not only is there sin to be shunned, not only is there a Savior to be received, but there's no gospel message complete unless you know the third thing. There is a certainty to lay a hold of. There is a certainty to lay a hold of. You may say, Pastor, I totally, I totally believe that there is sin in this world. It does not take a rocket scientist to see that. I totally believe that I've been involved in that. And I totally believe that the outcome of sin is not good. You may say, Pastor, I even believe that Jesus, the Son of God, that He came. That He came to offer forgiveness of sins. But you may be saying this morning, as some of those in the church are saying, Pastor, you know what? I know that Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm just not sure that that's what's in store for me. You don't say it in those words. You say it in a different set of words. You may say, Pastor, I know what I've done. I'm not sure Jesus can save me. You may say, Pastor, I know how good I am. I don't need a Savior. See, there are a lot of folks that don't understand. Satan believes Jesus is God's only begotten Son. Satan believes that death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. Satan's a firm believer that Jesus rose from the dead that you may have eternal life. (laughs) The question is, what do you believe? What do you believe? You may be sitting here this morning and saying, my life's a wreck. My marriage is a wreck. My home life's a wreck. My job's a wreck. I don't see any future. I don't see any future in what's going on. I've put my trust in Jesus Christ to save me from my sins. But it hasn't physically changed a thing in my life. There's nothing physical changed in my life. Just this week I ran across a a message from an old black preacher. An old black preacher named Dr. S.M. Lockridge. Dr. S.F. Lockridge preached the message one time, and the theme of his message, the resounding theme of his message that kept coming out over and over again, he says, just hold on, Sundays are coming. Just hold on, Sundays are coming. One of the greatest lies that the devil tells us is that Jesus does not have the power to save you. That you've been too bad, or maybe you've been so good. But that Jesus doesn't have the power to save you. He wants you to believe that you're so good you don't need a savior. He wants you to believe that you're so bad that Jesus wouldn't even have you. But that's the beauty of the empty tomb. That's the beauty of the empty tomb. And that's why Paul addressed it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. We're not going to read it again, but he starts off in verse 12 asking... Why do some of you, why do some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? He says this makes no sense. 
He said, this makes absolutely no sense. He addresses the heresy that's crept into the church. And in the verses following, he tells them just how foolish it is to believe that the risen Savior does not have the capability of raising you from death in sin to life in Christ. He follows it in verse 13. He says, if there's no resurrection in your future... It's because Christ wasn't raised from the dead. In verse 14, he said, And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, what are we doing this morning? This is useless. This is useless. The preaching of the gospel is useless. The gathering of the church, useless. He goes, Oh, as a matter of fact, to even say, Your faith, your faith that there is a God, useless. If you don't believe, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and one day is going to raise you from the dead and has the power to raise you from death and sin to life in Him, your faith is useless. He goes on to fifth season, as a matter of fact, every one of us is a liar. Every one of us is a liar because we have said that God raised Him from the dead. In verse 16 he says, If none of the dead rise, if none of the dead rise, then Christ did not rise Himself. And if Christ did not rise, verse 17, your sins have not been forgiven. To think that Jesus doesn't have the power to raise an old dead sinner to life in Christ means your sins are not forgiven either. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 18 and he says, In fact, those who've already died, they're in hell. They're in hell. If there is no resurrection, if God doesn't have the power to raise you from death and sin to life in Christ, those who have died ahead of you, they're already experienced in hell. That's a chilling thought now, isn't it? He goes on to verse 19 and says this. If the only reason you are following Christ is for what you can get out of Him for this life, he says you're a fool. He says you're a fool. If you've accepted Jesus Christ with one thing on your mind, how He can change the life that you're living right now, He says, we're the most pitiable, we're the most foolish of all. You see, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior has very little to do with the change of your physical life now. But it has everything to do with your eternal life forever. You see, the answer to the question of whose fool are you doesn't have a hundred-year consequence. It has an eternal consequence. But thank God Paul didn't stop there when he said that we're the most pitiful. In verse 20, verse 20, he makes a statement, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes a powerful statement that Christ has risen and that He has become the first of many who will rise. And I stand with Paul. I stand with Paul when in Philippians 3.10 he says this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not only the resurrection from the death of sin, but from death physically to live Again, Paul's greatest desire in life was to know Christ and to know Him in the power, 
that raised Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we may live in a world that is filled with sin and seems to have no hope. We may have, we may have Satan whispering in our ear that sin is fun and sin makes your life complete. We may live in a world that seems to reward those, reward those who follow the ways of the world. But I'm here to tell you this morning that this world and all the things of this world will one day pass away. They will all be gone. They'll be burnt up in the fire. There will be nothing left. And following the ways of the world leads to an eternal life in a place called hell. It is only through knowing and believing in the saving work of Christ on the cross and the power of God that raised Him from the dead that you can have hope, hope of eternal life in a place called heaven. How do you apply that power to your life? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's not enough to know that you need a Savior. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died on the cross. It's not enough to be certain that there's a God who loves you. It's not even enough to know that God has given Jesus to pay the debt for your sin. And it's not even enough to know that there is an eternal life. Satan believes all of those things. It's not enough just to know it. You must believe that God raised him from the dead. And that there's an empty tomb outside of the city of Jerusalem that is proof positive that Jesus is alive. But your faith can't be just in an empty tomb. Your faith can't be in an empty tomb. It must be in a living Savior. It must be a living Savior that conquered death. Paul wraps up this 15th chapter back in the 54th verse when he says this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there is victory over this world. There is victory over sin. There is a Savior that needs to be believed and received. And there is an eternal life that is a certainty for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I ask you this morning, are you willing to shun sin? Are you willing to receive that Savior, that free gift from God? Are you willing to confess and believe that God has raised Him from the dead? If your answer to that is yes this morning, then you're no longer a fool of Satan's and the world. You're now a fool of a God that sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins, buried in a tomb and rose Him three days later that you might have eternal life. And you can stand as I do with Paul. Paul in Romans 1.16. Paul in Romans 1.16 says some very powerful words. You know, there are a lot of things in this life that I'm ashamed of. There are a lot of things that I've done in this life that I'm ashamed of. There's ways that I've talked to my wife that I'm ashamed of. There's ways that I've treated my children that I'm ashamed of. There's things I've done in business that I am absolutely ashamed of. There are times that I've turned my back on what God has told me to do that I am absolutely ashamed of. I'm ashamed of the things that this world has become I'm ashamed that I haven't made a difference. I'm ashamed of the things that are going on in the church. I'm ashamed of the number of leaders that are succumbing to the temptation of sin in their life and falling and taking with them a multitude of those who are on the fence of believing in Jesus Christ. 
I'm ashamed that I haven't used every waking moment in my life to tell someone about my Savior. I'm ashamed of a lot of things in my life. But I stand with Paul, what he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I ask you this morning, are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you ashamed of what he did on the cross for you? Are you ashamed of the fact that God loved you so much he sent his only begotten son? If not, then what would keep you today from shunning sin? What would keep you today from receiving a Savior? What would keep you today from grasping a hold of eternal life? Is there anything in this world worth a place called hell? Who's fool are you? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.